This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. President Joe Biden made a surprise visit to Ukraine today as the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of the country approaches. A statement by the White House said he's there to, quote, reaffirm our unwavering and unflagging commitment to Ukraine's democracy, sovereignty, and territorial integrity. The idea that Ukraine is an independent state with its own national identity is one that Russian President Vladimir Putin has openly disputed since long before the invasion, and he's not alone, and this is not a modern idea, but one that dates far back into history. Our guest today strongly disputes this claim, and his recent books offer direct evidence of a decades-long effort by the Soviet Union and then Russia to stoke divisions among the Ukrainian diaspora and people around the world and cast doubt on the very idea of an independent Ukraine. Dr. Lubomir Lechuk is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the Royal Military College of Canada and author of more than 30 books, including his two most recent, Soviet Disinformation and Alleged Nazi War Criminals in North America, What We Didn't Know Then and What We Know Now, and Enemy Archives, Soviet Counterinsurgency Operations and the Ukrainian Nationalist Movement. Professor Lechuk will be in Southwest Florida later this week to give two presentations as part of Florida Gulf Coast University's adult continuing education program called the FGCU Academy on the history of Ukrainian national identity and concerted efforts to discredit it. I spoke with him on Friday. Let's hear that now. Professor Lechuk, welcome to Gulf Coast Life. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. So for starters, can you tell us just a bit about yourself and your academic areas of focus? Sure. I was born in Kingston, Ontario, which is where I now teach. I teach at the Royal Military College of Canada. My parents were post-World War II refugees who came to Canada to find sanctuary and asylum here and found it and were very grateful for the rest of their lives. My mother had been a slave laborer in Nazi Germany during the war. She was taken from her village in Western Ukraine. My father was part of the Ukrainian resistance to foreign occupation, and they actually met up in a refugee camp in uh, Munich, just outside of Munich, and uh, met each other and immigrated to Canada in 1949. So I was born here in Kingston, Ontario in 1953. I always tell my students that's the year Stalin died, and I have a mustache, so we get a laugh out of that. You know, my family roots trace back to Western Ukraine. Um, I grew up actually going to Queen's University here in Kingston and doing a degree in honors Bachelor of Science. And then I moved into an MA with an interest in historical geography and finally did a PhD at the University of Alberta in Edmonton in Western Canada on post-World War II Ukrainian refugee immigration to Canada. So basically, in effect, I studied uh, Ukrainian themes from my graduate level on. Um, I've since then been associated with a chair of Ukrainian studies at the University of Toronto as a fellow, but my main occupation really is a professor here at the Royal Military College of Canada in Kingston, which for your listeners there is the equivalent of West Point, if you like. It's a, it's a university for training young men and women for careers of effective service in the Canadian forces. Um, so that in a nutshell is, is my sort of academic career. I've uh, published or authored, co-authored uh, 31 books as of today, uh, many of them having to do with Ukrainian-Canadian history, but also with the history of Ukraine in the 20th and 21st centuries. I've also been very interested in refugee migration. So for a time, I was seconded to serve on the Canadian Immigration and Refugee Board. So that's the body that determines who is a refugee and what kind of uh, circumstances they come from and whether they should be allowed to Canada. 
And on the other side of it, I also served for a time on the parole board of Canada, sort of dealing with uh, release and pardons and parole conditions. So I've had a fairly interesting and varied career and uh, enjoy writing, enjoy speaking, and uh, have given a lot of my attention to a relatively unknown subject, uh, which is Ukraine. I mean, everyone now knows about Ukraine, particularly in the last uh, year of this uh, war against Ukraine that Mr. Putin has been waging. But when I grew up, people said, what's a Ukrainian? Uh, where is Ukraine? It's just some part of Russia. It's, it's uh, little Russians. There was a great deal of indifference, a great deal of ignorance. And sometimes even there was some outright hostility to the very idea of an independent Ukrainian state. So I kind of grew up in that context. And in my life, I'm, I'll be 70 in July, I've noticed, you know, what a remarkable transformation, the work of many scholars and community activists and, and just good people in our community has helped the world better understand that Ukrainians are a distinct nation. We never were Russians. We aren't Russians now and certainly never will be in the future. I think that's clear to everybody. So it's been, um, you know, it's been a, a really good career and a, and a kind of a, you know, when you look back on your life and you go, you know, did I achieve anything? Is anything changed? Is anything better? I say yes, and I and I like that feeling. So it's a good feeling. Plus, I've really enjoyed teaching students. Well, I certainly learned some over the last year and a lot in leading up to this interview. So um, I'm happy to be able to always learn new things. Um, so you've already sort of outlined the fact that, you know, while it may be claimed by Russia that Ukraine has always been a part of it, that's not the truth, correct? Oh, absolutely not. Look, um, Russian, and I, when I say Russian here, I mean both Tsarist Russian imperial propaganda, so before the Bolshevik coup d'etat, then during the Soviet period, and now in the post-Soviet, post-1991 period, there have always been those within the Russian world, if I can call it that, who have claimed that Ukrainians are not a distinct nationality. But if you actually look at the history, you'll see that Ukraine as an entity existed before Russia. Russia was Muscovy. Kiev was the capital of a medieval principality known as Kievan Rus, not Russia, Kievan Rus. Uh, its destruction in the 13th century did then set into motion the emergence of distinct peoples, the Belarusians, the Russians, and the Ukrainians. But the fact is that there have been many episodes throughout history, certainly from the 17th century on, when Ukrainians have established independent states, Ukraines. Um, they have been surrounded by enemies who've been predatory and they have failed several times, but there's been a persistent struggle for freedom and independence. And that has seen Ukrainians create states that have survived some cases for very brief periods of time, some cases for several years. And finally, 1991, thankfully, and my parents were still alive to see this, which was really great. Um, Ukraine became a state recognized by the rest of the world. It assumed it's re-emerged re on the maps of Europe in its rightful place. Of course, I understand that from the point of view of some Russians, this is uncomfortable. Um, there is this notion, I'm sure you've read that Mr. Putin says that Ukrainians don't exist. There's no legitimate Ukrainian state. We're all just one group. These people have been misled. Well, that's not the feeling in Ukraine. I mean, there were always, you know, Look, Canadians and Americans are neighbors. I happen to really like Americans, and I hope most Americans really like Canadians. We're good neighbors. So, you know, we feel similar. I mean, I watch American television. We're speaking English together. 
um, you know, it, it, it's reasonable to say, well, you know, they're kind of like us. And yes, there are some common uh, historical experiences, but by and large, Ukrainians are different. And that has been suppressed by Russians, whether they are Tsarist Russians in the imperial time or Soviet uh, to some degree. And certainly now, Mr. Putin's essay a year or so ago saying that, you know, there's no such thing as a Ukrainian and no reason for a Ukrainian state really sets out kind of an, a, a genocidal agenda. And that's why Ukrainians, as you see, regardless of what language they speak, because again, people say, well, all these Ukrainians in the East speak Russian. Well, I've been in the East. I was in the East on the front lines in 2017. I've been there many times. Yes, people there speak Russian. The same way that, you know, most people in North America will speak English because it's the dominant language. But that doesn't mean their loyalty is to the Russian Federation or to the Soviet state or to Imperial Russia. There are always, of course, a few people who will say, oh, I'll assimilate on this career. I'll get career advancement from this and so on if I speak the, the language of the master. But the reality of it is, regardless of the mother tongue or the language you might speak in your home, that has nothing necessarily to do with your loyalty or your political identity. And, and I think, you know, Mr. Putin's assumption that people would just welcome him when his forces went into Ukraine on the 24th of February of last year. Well, you can see Russian speaking Ukrainians are fighting fiercely to repel the invaders. It's, it's you know, Putin's genocidal agenda, the agenda of the KGB man in the Kremlin has been blunted by people who may speak a language or at least a dialect of the same language, but certainly don't want to be part of the Russian world. And, you know, you don't have to believe me. You, you just turn on your television and you can see it happening every day. How much is the desire for people like Vladimir Putin to claim that Ukraine has always been a part of Russia about just some sort of historical understanding of empire? And how much of it is just basically about resources? Because as I understand it, Ukraine is very rich in, you know, they make a lot of food. They have, you know, you know is, is this about resources on some level deep down? I think, well, I would say that in the context of Mr. Putin, this is an imperial project. You've got to remember, his grandfather was in the Cheka, which was the Soviet secret police, and he was literally a loyal servant to Stalin. Mr. Putin's father was then in the NKVD, which is the predecessor of the KGB. He was, again, a Soviet secret policeman. And Mr. Putin was in the KGB. So you've got three generations of, of basically Soviet secret policemen. That's quite a, a family history. In their minds, there is a great Russia, quote unquote. It's certainly not great, but great Russia in their minds. And Mr. Putin is not trying to restore the Soviet Union. I mean, he did call the collapse of the Soviet Union the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. It was actually the greatest blessing of the 20th century. But that aside... Putin really wants to reestablish the imperium, you know, this this so-called Russian mir or Russian world that would, you know, include Ukrainians and Belarusians and give great power status to what is, frankly, uh, a power that is really regional in, in its in its importance. Um, yes, resources, of course, play a role in this. Uh, Ukraine from ancient times has been known as the breadbasket of Europe, um, the blockage in the Black Sea that occurred as a result of this escalation in the war that began in 2014 had certainly seen uh, hunger 
uh, as a consequence in many parts of North Africa and Egypt and so on. I mean, Ukraine provides a lot of food to the world, and that's been partly cut off. You know, Ukrainians, however, are not just uh, agriculturalists. They have a very sophisticated high-tech industry. Again, look at how desperate Mr. Putin is to destroy the infrastructure of Ukraine. And he certainly does great damage and, and of course, kills lots of people. But the Ukrainians keep putting the power back on, keep getting the water running again, keep, you know, the word resilience is overused, but it's being demonstrated on a daily basis. Ukrainians aren't giving up because they are a well-educated European nation that is fighting to preserve its right to be an independent state and be part of Europe and be part of the rules-based international order, to be a liberal democracy. In contrast to the quasi-authoritarian, corrupt, uh, hierarchical, anti-democratic, homophobic, anti-Semitic society that Mr. Putin uh, runs. You know, look at all the bright young Russian men and women who have fled Russia in the last several months rather than fight for Russia. When you have to sort of empty out your prisons and force people into service or hire mercenaries to fight your wars, you've got a pretty big problem. Uh, and of course, they're not doing that well because they're not motivated. If you, you know, I talk to friends in Ukraine, and I've lost friends, by the way, in this war, so it's it's been painful. But I've yet to hear anyone say, well, we should give up, or we should give up territory, or, or we should you know, retreat, or we should uh, concede or enter into some kind of peace negotiations. Everyone is saying, we must fight, because this is an existential battle. If we lose, they're going to wipe us out. And of course, you know, you can imagine, Mike, if, you know, if I, if I broke into your home at uh, 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning and threatened your wife and children, and, you know, your, your livelihood and everything, you, you'd fight to the death. And that's exactly what you're saying. Ukraine did not invade Russia. Ukraine has no territorial claims against Russia. Let Russia be. But at this point, it's the invader. It's the aggressor. There are going to have to be war crimes trials. There are going to have to be reparations paid. There are going to have to be security guarantees for Ukraine uh, to ensure that either it becomes a part of NATO or becomes, uh, as Mr. Zelensky said it, uh, a second Israel in Europe, a, a country that is able to defend itself. And so... You know, this this is a consequence of this war. Uh, in a sense, it's Ukraine's war for independence. I'd like to take a moment to reintroduce my guest. Dr. Lobomir Lechuk is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the Royal Military College of Canada. He will be in Southwest Florida later this week speaking as part of Florida Gulf Coast University's adult continuing education program, the FGCU Academy, with presentations in Naples on February 23rd and 24th. The topic of his talk is Soviet disinformation and alleged Nazi war criminals in North America, what we didn't know then, what we know now. If you'd like to engage with the show about today's topic, just find us on Facebook or on Twitter. On Twitter, use the hashtag GCL. So can you give us the the, the short version of what your talk is about, you know, you explain what the disinformation campaign it refers to uh, called Operation Payback um, is or was and sort of the reasoning behind it or its goals. Sure. Well, Operation Payback or some kind, some people translate it as retribution was a KGB campaign. So a Soviet secret police campaign probably initiated in the 1970s, although the documents we found are from 1985. And it was intended to stoke tensions, particularly between the Jewish diaspora in the West and Ukrainians and 
members of the Baltic communities as well. The whole idea was to say, in World War II, Ukrainians and Estonians, Latvians, Lithuanians, and so on, collaborated with the Nazis and took a role, a leading role even, in the Holocaust. And some of these people have managed to escape justice and resettle in North America. And they are, your, you know, the quiet neighbor, the, the fellow down the road, and you should be searching them out and bringing them to justice. Now, were there Ukrainian collaborators in World War II? Yeah, of course there were. Uh, there were collaborators in every community that worked with the Nazis. And if found, they should certainly be brought to justice. And if the evidence is clear, then they should be punished. Uh, nobody disagrees with that. But what the Soviets did was they began a campaign, and really there are traces of it in the 1970s, to sort of spread increasing numbers of very uh, definite sort of propaganda to stir people up, to get people angry at each other. And they stoked it in many different ways. It wasn't just between Ukrainians and Jews. Um, they tried to provoke Black Americans into disliking uh, the Jewish community in New York, for example. They did all that kind of stuff. But the idea was play off some historical prejudices on both sides, by the way, on both sides, stoke it all up and get these two communities to fight it out among each other. And it worked. Um, it worked in part because the Soviets invested a lot of effort in it. There were pre-existing animosities and prejudices, and we, that can't be denied. There was the sense on one side that those Ukrainians had collaborated, and there was a sense on the other side, well, so had some of the Jews collaborated with the, the Soviets. So there was that tension. And yet, and this is the really critical thing, you know, why would the Soviets spend so much effort? And the answer is because in the 19, late 60s and 70s in Ukraine, so or in, Soviet, in the Soviet Union, Jewish refuseniks, Ukrainian human rights activists and dissidents were starting to work together Together within the Soviet Union, individuals of Jewish heritage or faith were meeting Ukrainians and going, hey, you know, we actually have a common foe here. The Soviet system is persecuting Jewish refuseniks, persecuting men and women of faith, persecuting Ukrainian patriots. We have a lot in common, the sort of Helsinki process. Well, as those Ukrainians uh, you know, it's not fair to call them Jews because in a sense they didn't have a, their own state, but Jewish Ukrainians and Ukrainian Ukrainians or whatever you want to call it, started to collaborate inside the Soviet Union to challenge Soviet power. The KGB said, oh, this is a problem. We've got to break up any possible mutual united effort by dissidents within the Soviet Union and any support they might get from out in the West. And of course, you know, there's a very large Ukrainian immigration throughout the world, has been for hundreds of years, um, a very large Jewish community, quite influential. Those two communities sort of, you know, didn't really work together that much, but they kind of coexisted. There was starting to become a little bit of cooperation. You know, we have to help the refuseniks. We have to help the human rights activists in Ukraine. The Soviets were alarmed by that. And so they stoked up World War II stories to provoke anger, discourse, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it worked. Their document, so this isn't my opinion, the document we have from 1985, 
talks about how the KGB deliberately did this in the United States and provoked the creation of the Office of Special Investigations in the Ministry of Justice or Department of Justice to investigate, quote unquote, Nazis in, in North in America. Uh, in Canada, the same document says we were so successful in the United States that we managed to persuade the government of Canada to establish something that was called the Commission of Inquiry on War Criminals, headed by the late Mr. Justice Duchenne. So two government bodies in the 70s and 80s investigating the Nazis in our midst. Of course, people were alarmed by this. People, you know, didn't know how to react. There were all sorts of accusations and mutual recriminations. And so any possible united front was certainly disrupted. And that had its consequences. It had its consequences for many decades. It still has lingering echoes. Um, you know, I, my most recent book with my colleague in, in Kiev, Ukraine, he's now a member of the Ukrainian Verkhovna Rada, the, the Ukrainian parliament, Professor Voldemir Vietrovich. He and I just published a book called Enemy Archives, which deals with uh, Soviet counterinsurgency operations. And if you look, you know, if that book has now just been released, and there's already people saying, well, you know, this is an apology for the Ukrainian nationalist movement. No, it's not. It's it's based on KGB documents and it tells the truth about who these people were. Again, they weren't perfect. Nothing is. And no, no political movement, no insurgency is comprised of angels. We get it. But the point is, what were their ideals? What were their activities focused on? And that was achieving an independent Ukraine. Now, and they fought against all comers. Soviets, Poles, Germans, and so on. Now what we see, however, and, and this is where I have a little bit of hope, is that, well, the KGB is gone, but the, the Russian Federation continues with the same sort of propaganda. So if you go back to the 24th of February and you listen to what Mr. Putin said, he his excuse for invading Ukraine was to get rid of, and he didn't say Nazis, he didn't say nationalists, he said Banderivchi. These were followers of the organization of Ukrainian nationalists headed by Stepan Bandera, who was himself assassinated in the 1950s. This was a Ukrainian nationalist movement. Putin was actually saying, because he's a KGB man, I'm going into Ukraine to wipe out the Ukrainian nationalists. Now, later that became denazification and it became all the rest of it. But in his original words, he was talking about a specific political movement, which would be unknown to most Americans and Canadians. So Putin still believes that, right? The irony here is, of course, we have a president, and he is, and I've described him this way several times, President Volodymyr Zelensky, is Ukraine's Moses. He is himself of Jewish heritage. And he has demonstrated time and time again over this last year that he is a brave man and a great leader of the Ukrainian nation. And the fact that his heritage might be Jewish or he, whatever is totally irrelevant to Ukrainians who overwhelmingly voted him into power and overwhelmingly support him to this day, a year later. Why is that? Because it's a new Ukraine. It's the 21st century. We're not talking about World War II here. Now, there are those of my age and, and perhaps a bit older who are still easily, you know, alarmed or angered or roused to fury by, you know, the debates about who did what to who in World War II. Let's leave this to the historians. Right now, there is a genocidal campaign being directed against Ukraine and Ukrainians by the KGB man in the Kremlin and his Confederates. And I am delighted to see 
The world has rallied in support of Ukraine, or at least I'll say the civilized free world has rallied in support of Ukraine. I'm going to exclude North Korea and places like that. But that is a signal as to the future of Ukraine, a Ukraine in Europe, a democracy, a country that believes in a rules-based international order. I, I have to say that, again, we said a few moments ago that when I grew up, no one knew what Ukraine was or who Ukrainians are. Thank God for America. Look at how America has stood by Ukraine in these last 12 months. Look how the British have stood with Ukraine, Canada, and so on. The free world knows now what Ukraine is. They're not falling for that propaganda of Putin that, you know, the Ukrainian government is Nazis. I mean, I, I, you know, it, it would be laughable if it weren't for the fact that there still are some fellow travelers and that those sorts around who, you know, give that comment and pretend it has some credence. There are, you know, millions of Ukrainians right now of all political stripes, of all backgrounds by ethnicity, so-called race and so on, who are fighting to defend their country. And thank God again for America for giving them the means to do it. And I don't care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or independent. I look at the American government. I look at your Congress, your Senate, and I see good people on all sides rallying in support of Ukraine because you know it's the right thing to do. You are helping a country preserve its independence in a fight for freedom. Ukraine is defending Europe. It's at the gates of Europe. It is a country that is shedding its blood, even as you and I speak, in defense of everything that America has always stood for. You know, you, you know, like, I know it's unfashionable now to say America is the most important country in the world or whatever, but it is, you know? Uh, I'm a Canadian, I'm not jealous of the United States. I'm very proud of my country, the country that gave my parents refuge after the Second World War. But I thank God on a regular basis for the fact that we live next door to the United States. You're not perfect, neither are we. But wow, imagine, you know, would you rather live next door to the People's Republic of China or the Russian so-called Federation? I mean, look at these countries and what they have done to the world, as opposed to the hope that is still so central to what you refer to as your American dream. You know, every time I'm in the United States, I see and meet people who tell me about how that dream is still real. And I believe it is. And so when I talk to my friends in Ukraine, you know, they are so absolutely grateful to your government, to your nation, to the listeners of this, to this program for everything that the United States has done and hopefully still will continue to do until victory is won. And that, that to me is, you know, uh, probably the main message that I'm going to try to convey to my uh, audiences in the next week when I'm in Florida. Um, I've only got about a minute and a half left, so you'll have to be fairly concise. But, you know, were you surprised by this level of escalation of what we've seen over the last year? And have you been surprised at the, the resistance that they've managed to put up? Just before the war began, I published an opinion editorial in which I thought I argued that Mr. Putin would win the war if he just stopped simply by applying pressure. Look at all the troops I have on your borders. Comply or you're in trouble. But he crossed the border. He crossed the Rubicon. He, he crossed the line. And now it's a full-scale war. I'm not surprised at the defense 
that Ukrainians have shown. Uh, I was on the front lines in 2017. Ukrainians today are not what they were in 1991. Uh, they have been fighting a war against Russian aggression since 2014. They know what they're fighting for. Their morale is very, very high. And perhaps more importantly than anything else, do the math. Since 1991, we've had at least one generation of people born in Ukraine who are not Soviet citizens. They were never in a Soviet Union. They've only known freedom. These are the young men and women, and women, many women, on the front lines who are fighting for the preservation of a free and independent Ukraine in Europe. These are people who are not going to give up because they've never been Soviets. You know, there's the biblical story about Moses leading his people out of bondage in, in Egypt, and he wandered through the desert for 40 years. Now, it's not that far from Egypt to the, the promised land. Um, the generation that had been born in captivity, the slaves, they had to die out before the promised land could be reached. And even Moses himself could see the promised land from the hill. He looked down from the mountain and saw the promised land. Even he didn't get there because he was born in bondage. There's a free generation of Ukrainians now, and they're fighting for a free Ukraine, and they will reach that promised land. It's probably going to take them, frankly, a few more years, but they're almost there. All right. Well, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Lubomir Lechuk, is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the Royal Military College of Canada and author of many books. Dr. Lechuk, thank you so much for your time and, uh, you know, have a good time here in Southwest Florida when you come down. Thank you, Mike. My pleasure. Professor Lechuk will be in Southwest Florida later this week, speaking as part of Florida Gulf Coast University's Adult Continuing Education Program, the FGCU Academy, with presentations in Naples on February 23rd and 24th. You can find links to details about his talks and how to register on our website, wgcu.org gcl. I spoke with Dr. Lechuk last Friday. If you missed any of the show today, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website or wherever you find podcasts. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, and WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida.